Modern medicine is advancing at faster speeds than ever before. Yet the world still sees the healthcare experience as difficult and dated. The Real Chemistry podcast shares interviews with industry leaders who are innovating in healthcare. Join Real Chemistry's Chief Marketing Officer, Aaron Strout, as he explores how AI and ideas can come together to transform healthcare into what it should be. Good afternoon. This is Aaron Strout, Chief Marketing Officer of Real Chemistry and the host of the Real Chemistry podcast. And today uh, we have yet another special guest. Uh, we we seem to always you know land the cream of the crop. That's a little nod to uh, something we'll we'll talk about a little bit later in the show. But Jennifer Goldsack, who is the CEO and co-founder of the Digital Medicine Society, and uh, just an amazing human being, highly degreed, very personable, Olympic athlete, and you know we we cover a lot of ground talking about things like how she got here, why digital medicine is so important, um, what the ecosystem looks like if you're setting up a business or sort of evolving your business in this landscape, what are some of the key things that you need to think about? Hint, one of them is uh, making sure that you're solving an actual problem. The other is making sure that whatever you're doing will get reimbursed. Um, we have a little fun at the end with some of our more personal questions, uh, but really just you know a lovely conversation with a lovely person. And one of the things that I do want to nod to is um, this podcast should be going live on Thursday, the 14th of June. And if you head over to our blog at realchemistry.com, we put up a blog post yesterday that I think you'll also appreciate. And so take a minute to do that, realchemistry.com, just like it sounds. Our digital health team was behind this, and I promised them that I would do a little push. So without further ado, hopefully you enjoyed this episode, and we'll give it a good listen. All right, Jennifer, I am looking forward to this. I, I say that all the time because I have a ridiculous number of really good, interesting guests, but I did have a chance, and we'll talk more about this in a minute, to hear you as you participated in our Real Health Equity event. And so in addition to reading your bio and the background, I get to see you in action, and so I know this is going to be great. And I will say, I appreciate you doing this. Um, you're traveling today. You're in our nation's capital, and so you're a little bit closer to me, even though I'm on the West Coast, uh, but really grateful that you're able to take the time to do this. Uh, delighted to be chatting with you, Aaron, and participating in the equity event was also a privilege. It was a day of tremendous and important conversation. So uh, delighted to be back with you. Well, thank you for saying that. I, I completely agree. And I was blown away and I helped put it on, right? So I think that's a good sign when you're uh, helping to orchestrate and you know what's coming and you're still pleasantly surprised. I do want to start with sort of the place that I like to start with all my guests, right? And it's like, what got you here? What got you involved in healthcare? And we'll go through like some of the cool things that you've done because it's not every day that I have an Olympic athlete, um, in addition to lots of other sort of amazing things that you've done. But let's talk about the fact that um, you've had an interesting career journey leading up to DIME, the Digital Medicine Society. What got you interested in health? And then we'll touch a little bit on the whole um, professional athlete piece, because I think you know, folks will be fascinated to hear that story as well. Um, what brought me to this place is uh, apparently liking really hard problems and wanting to make a difference in the world. So uh, hard problems at one point in my life, and you're right, I was an athlete, was um, how quickly can I go backwards in a hollowed out piece of wood on a piece of water? Um, that uh, I've 
dedicated my ambitions to things that I think have a uh, have more impact on people's lives. But um, I originally trained as a chemist. My research was into, you know, sort of liquid crystals and, um, you know, then took some time out to be an athlete and I competed at the 2008 games and always thought, you know, I have good education. I'm a hard worker and I'm an Olympian. It will be easy to find a job. And if anyone remembers the fall of 2008, that certainly wasn't the case. Um, and so ended up working. Uh, I was living in Philly and ended up working to put my research skills to use within healthcare system. There was the passage of health reform. Um, the High Tech Act went through. So the introduction of electronic health records. Um, and that timing was really important for me. I had had the privilege of waking up every day as an athlete and spending my days trying to be the best in the world at something. And a lot of people struggle to transition out of that. And I was really passionate about how can we work to improve people's lives. And it felt very tangible right from the start. And I feel privileged that as we digitize healthcare, um, as uh, I lead an extraordinary team and community at the Digital Medicine Society, that it still feels like I have the chance to do that every day. Well, I love that story. And I do want to talk a little bit about the the um, rowing crew, right? But anyway, one thing I do want to touch on just because I did my grad school uh, in DC and you are in DC right now, but I did see looking at your bio that you did go to George Washington University, um, you know, on top of University of Oxford and University of Pennsylvania. So like a pretty nice trifecta of uh, university experience there. Thanks, Aaron. My mom's very proud. <laughs> Good. Well, you know, and it's nice to do it in different places, right, in the world. And so you got to do some eastern seaboard, some across the pond, uh, based on the accent. I mean, I guess that's where you hail from originally. Um, let's dive in a little bit to the athlete piece. And so at what point, like, how did you choose crew? And at what point did you know, like, I might actually be good enough to compete, you know, at the Pan Am Games and the Olympics? I think you won a silver uh, medal. So not only did you just go, but you also went and sort of participated and achieved at the highest level. Um, I knew when I was 10 years old, and I'm going to give away my age here, Aaron, I knew when I was 10 that I wanted to go to the Olympics. I will never forget it. There was a British sprinter called Linford Christie, and I remember watching him win the 100 meter sprint at the Barcelona Games, like sitting at the kitchen table and thinking, I really want to do that. And I was, uh, I played sort of all of the varsity sports throughout high school, really enjoyed it. But I had a job. I didn't do anything at a particular, you know, at a at a bigger level and then went off to university and actually ended up um, playing rugby for the university. So I was a double varsity athlete and uh, it had a pretty catastrophic knee injury um, that made it tough to come back. And at that point was a, you mentioned that I was at Oxford. So the two big sports there are rugby and rowing and you know, I knew how to train. I was a lifetime athlete. I was, was, am pretty tough. Um, and so decided that I needed to do a sport that was hard. I want physically, I should probably sit down. Um, and that led to rowing. And I remember turning up and saying, you know, to the university team and saying, you know, you should teach me to row. And they were like, you know, at this point I'm a junior. They're like, we don't teach people to row, go back to your college because it has a collegiate system. Um, and actually, as it turns out, the British national team happened to be doing physiological testing that week. So they just threw me in the mix. And, um, you know, my wingspan is, I mean, I'm tall, but my wingspan is much taller even than me, sort of lung capacity, all of these sorts of things. And so immediately they said she could be good. And for me, 
then there was no reason, there was no forgivable reason why I wouldn't make it. I I was told that I had the physiology and then, you know, very stubborn. I dug in, I learned, I paid attention, I worked incredibly hard um, and actually made my first world championships just a few years later. Well, it's an incredible story. And it's funny, we, our family jokes about it because I my daughter is fairly tall. Actually, I have two daughters and they're both fairly tall. But we joked that in volleyball, you can't teach height, right? So you could be the best player in the world. So obviously, in your case, height and wingspan and lung capacity. And But I think you're selling yourself a little short because anybody can have those things. But to have that sort of stick-to-itiveness, especially to pick it up so late. And I'd also hazard a guess that while Oxford may specialize both in rowing you know, or crew and rugby, not everyone does both, right? Because they're fairly opposite ends of the spectrum. They both require a lot of endurance, but one is very brutish where one feels so elegant. It's like you're a, you know, water bugs scooting across the river. So um, very cool that both of those were in your repertoire. Uh, very lucky. And definitely it's a very small club. Uh, those of us who are fortunate enough to do both. So uh, you're exactly right. Well, that's why you're cut out to do what you do today. And so one of the things I want to start to do for the listeners context is let's talk a little bit about you alluded to, you know, the the act that started to make this uh, a thing, but why digital medicine is so important in today's healthcare environment. And, you know, what are we looking at? What is it helping to solve right now? It's interesting, isn't it? Because healthcare is such an enormous industry. So worldwide, $10 trillion domestically, it's a four point something trillion dollar industry. It's 18% of GDP. Every single person needs the system to care for them or a loved one at some point in their life. And unfortunately, for too many people for extended periods, um, and sometimes even continuous periods. And yet it's an industry that is sort of really become the last bastion of digitization. If we think about large industries and where sort of digital innovation has truly transformed the way um, industries sort of execute their core business. So there's this, you know, there's this part of me that always wants to be, you know, solving those hard problems and it is the last bastion. And so that's attractive. But the reality is we don't have a choice not to get this right. We are we exist in a healthcare system that's in crisis. The system is unaffordable, both for society and the individual. We do not have the kind of outcomes that show any kind of return on investment, either in terms of healthcare outcomes or even just how healthy the population is. We see a level of health inequity that is absolutely unacceptable and persists despite decades of talking about it. And we also have far too many diseases and conditions where there's no disease-modifying treatment and there's no cure. We cannot keep going with the status quo. It simply won't work. We don't have enough clinicians to care for people. There's inadequate access. And there's still too many unanswered clinical questions that we must address. This is why we need digital. It's not a... It is not a hammer in search of a nail when it comes to healthcare. It is an absolute must for us to be able to rescue a system and an industry that is designed for caring for people and is really struggling to do so right now. Well, thank you for that. And I actually have a stat based on what you just said that I learned today from my colleague, Mike Huckman, and that is there are apparently 10,000 identified diseases in the world of which only 500, so a very small percentage, have something that's an approved treatment. 
I did a podcast that listeners will have heard, hopefully already, with uh, Donna Cryer, who's the founder and CEO of the Global Liver Institute, um, just recently. One of the things that's interesting, you're nodding your head, so I'm not surprised you know of each other. One of the things that's interesting that I never would have thought about is, well, I agree with everything you just said, and I've seen during the pandemic, I think a lot of us did, just the access to medicine and why it would be that, you know, especially those that do not live near hospital systems need it. But she said that she went into a, um, it was, I think a Rite Aid or, you know, some sort of a pharmacy to get uh, a booster shot during the pandemic with her mom. And because of the fact that her mom was not technology friendly. And at that point, as you remember, you could really only sign up online. You couldn't call, you couldn't write your name on a list that the pharmacist was like, sorry, we can't actually give you the vaccine because you need an appointment. Yet her mom didn't know how to do this. So Donna being the good egg that she was helped her solve it. But I didn't, you know, I hadn't thought about like technology as a barrier. So I would love it for someone that thinks a lot about these things. That's such an expert. How do you think about this? And how does Dime think about this in terms of making sure that it is extensive, but doesn't end up sort of limiting the the access that people have if that's the channel that um, companies are, are pursuing? It's such a great question, and I'm going to answer it in full, and I don't want to be dismissive with what I'm about to say, but I think we need to be pretty frank with ourselves about what current state is. The ability to actually show up at the clinic to afford transport or to have a daughter, in Donna's example, who could actually take you is today a barrier for far too many people. Knowing where vaccines actually are is a barrier for far too many people. We have to be realistic about, look, what are some of the challenges that we need to intentionally address as we digitize healthcare to make sure that they don't add inefficiencies or inequity that are unacceptable, but at the same time, compared to what? The challenges to access in this country are absolutely enormous. Half of counties in the US do not have a single mental health care provider, despite the fact we find ourselves in a mental health crisis. 50% of Black Americans live in a county with no cardiac specialist. These are the sorts of issues that we're facing. So what I want to make sure we don't and I'm intentionally using a provocative word, waste our time doing, is hand-wringing and agonizing over the, oh gosh, what if, what if we don't have access to technology? Maybe we shouldn't do this. No, we need to do it. We just need to make sure that we take the time to think about all of the different use cases and all of the people that our industry exists to care for and contemplate that in how we build solutions and how we deploy solutions. And there always is one, whether it's, you know, unfortunately during the pandemic, you wouldn't have been able to do things like go to the library, but could we have added a phone call component? Could we have added a basic SMS component, not a smartphone, but a simple flip phone component where people were reaching out and saying, hey, can we schedule you for your vaccine? We can solve for all of these problems. There is no technical reason why there should be barriers to access or why there should be inequity. We simply have to take the time to pause and think about those challenges up front. And what I really don't want to happen is that we slow down progress because we are concerned about, you know, these challenges when the house is on fire. Well, that's a very smart answer, not surprisingly. And I think where I would sort of build on what you just said, and I had a guy that I worked with a million years ago who was at Forrester Research, and he talked about the concept. We 
this is early days. So talking about dating yourself, this is like late nineties, right? We're trying to figure out email because believe it or not, those of you who are younger listening, there was a day where email was not pervasive. You were not getting marketing emails. And so he had this concept of right time marketing and part of that and, and part and parcel of that was like with email, it's like, well, do I send it a, you know, every day, every week, every month or whatever? And it's like, let people choose. So I think to build on what you're saying is like, let's put out the house fire. And by the way, let's think about how we are preventative about it in the future so that, you know, we don't get into this situation. And part of that is making those multi-channel offerings available. So straightforward SMS. We know a lot of people, almost everyone has access to that, right? Um, making sure that there is some sort of a phone channel, even if it's like leaving a message, I think almost everyone knows how to do that. So I love how you're answering that. It's a little bit of a segue into our next conversation. And we talked about some of the complexities of the marketplace, right? So the success of digital medicine ultimately does rely on convening across healthcare. Mm -hmm. So you have the pharmas, you have the payers, the providers, um, you have the regulators. So as a company, whether it's a startup, whether it's like a, a large life sciences company, what should they be thinking about when they're building their business models or evolving their business models to develop these sustainable concepts that do provide medicine for all or therapies for all or you know therapy for all, like in the case of mental health? Sorry, that was a very long question. Um, a good question, though. I think the most important thing is to actually be able to clearly articulate the problem that you are trying to solve for and to have a deep understanding that it is actually a real pain point in the face of an industry that has an awful lot of pain points. You know, if you're nibbling around the edges, you are not going to be as successful as if you start developing solutions that get to the heart of the matter and integrate with other solutions that are coming to bear um, within the market. So I think that's absolutely critical. What is the problem that you are trying to solve for? And what's the significance of that problem, either to our clinical care providers who are under the most enormous amount of stress and pressure, we're seeing record levels of burnout, we're seeing those sort of shortages, whether it's to access, whether it's to efficiency, um, and who specifically benefits. I think the other thing, and you know, to a life sciences um, group, it might be more obvious, but particularly perhaps to the startup community um, and those even perhaps tech incumbents who aren't familiar with the healthcare industry is you have to figure out who's going to pay because too many times, for example, we'll see companies doing gymnastics to avoid regulatory oversight, um, right? Sort of narrowing claims. They want to be a wellness product, but that means that you're never going to, you know, no one is going to be reimbursed um, using the sort of CPT code um, approach for using your technology or for using your solution if it's a patient-facing solution, right? Actually understanding who is willing and able to pay um, is also really important. I can't tell you how many innovation, sort of healthcare innovation conferences I've been to, Aaron, and I'll sort of do the rounds on the show floor and, you know, talking to people with some really great ideas. And I always ask the question, you know, great, who's going to pay for this? All too often you sort of just hear, well, hospitals, you know, the clinician, and you think, just do you have any idea what kind of negative margins these healthcare systems are running right now? It's just not a viable pathway. So I think you we, you need to be really clear on the problem that you're trying to solve for and whether that is a genuine pain point. And I think also being really clear in this very, very complex environment, who's going to pay for it? Well, that is such great prescriptive advice. And I have a joke, running joke with the woman that leads our market access team, Rita Glaze, that 
you know, it's like essentially you can have the best therapy in the world, but if you can't get someone to pay for it, who cares? And I think people don't think about that. And I love the fact that you're telling people what problem are you trying to solve? Because I think we do, you know, I've grown up in the startup world too often. You have people that are a solution in search of a problem versus how about you solve something that's right in front of you and then make sure you're going to get reimbursed. So you've got the right business model thought through. So, um, one of the things that I would love to shift into is, you know, we know that data and evidence and things like that are such an important lifeblood of what we're doing. It's helping us to get more advanced with decentralized trials and things like that. But one of the questions I know the team wanted me to tee up for you is talking about how important integrated an integrated evidence plan is in the regulated environment and why. And actually, what I might ask you is, I'm not sure everyone listening will know what that is. So maybe if you could start with Tell us a little bit more about what it is, and then let's get into the, you know, why it's important and the the how. So if you're listening and you don't know what an integrated evidence plan is, you are you you are in good company. I think the majority of the innovation community, even some of the most thoughtful and pioneering folks in digital health, haven't actually contemplated this notion of an integrated evidence plan yet. It's something we've been thinking about an awful lot at Dime, and it's something that we are going to begin championing through some pre-competitive work, actually starting at this fall, Aaron, because we think it's so important. The concept behind an integrated evidence plan is that you build your entire evidence generation plan and protocols and budgets and timelines based on the needs of all of the downstream decision makers who will affect the success of your product in turn your business, and most importantly, the patients that you're actually developing this product in order to try and serve. So let's get specific about what I mean. So we are thinking about not simply defining your regulatory strategy and your evidence generation strategy to meet the needs of FDA, for example, if you are a product that falls under FDA oversight. But then actually you pause and you think, well, gosh, once I'm a regulated product, I'm going to need someone to pay for that product. I am going to need, if it's a patient-facing product, a clinician to have enough trust and to have seen sufficient evidence to actually believe and trust my product so that they are writing prescriptions. And we are going to need those patients themselves to actually trust and want to um, sort of engage with this therapy or with this um, solution if it is presented to them. How do you think a priori about designing studies that can be integrated so that you are generating all of that data and information in the most efficient and effective way possible? So you are perhaps adding additional data points or you're expanding the size of your study or you are adding um, sort of a second sub-study as opposed to having to sequentially over the period of, frankly, decades, top up and go back and almost recreate very similar studies to what you've conducted previously, but now you have to look for health economic outcome data that you just never collected the first time round. These are the sorts of things that I think that are not optional in the market headwinds that we are experiencing. It is simply not going to work to do all of these things sequentially. And it's I'd even make the the case, Aaron, that it may be unethical to do so, to essentially enroll patients to a very similar study to one that you've previously performed because you didn't think about all of the evidentiary needs up front. 
um, or to delay access to a really effective treatment or intervention because a cleared product sits on the shelf because we haven't generated the sort of evidence that payers, for example, need. Um, that That's an unacceptable state given the market. It also is not good for commercial success. So there's lots of reasons to think about this integrated evidence approach. Thank you for explaining that. And by the way, you're welcome to everyone listening in for this masterclass on how to set your business up properly. And I think there are a lot of these things that Unfortunately, unless you've done it before, you don't think about it going in because you just, why would you? And then when you've gone through the process a number of times, understanding the ecosystem and how it works, understanding what the barriers are, and like you said, understanding who are the downstream players who's impacted, really, really smart. I want to talk about one of those headwinds or potential headwinds, right? Because we have lived in such a partisan environment for a few years, and I think it's about to get sort of back to worse again since... We know that there are a lot of people throwing their names in the hat. Um, there's no clarity on, you know, whether Biden says he's going to win or run. This is in the United States, by the way, obviously. Sorry for folks listening elsewhere, but you're aware of our, our problems. One of the things I want to talk about is with the 2024 election on the horizon, do you have advice for companies, especially innovators who will have to deal with this potential headwind about how they move their programs forward and initiate change effectively? I think what we have to remember is that the regulators themselves are, apart from a few political appointees right at the top, are lifetime public servants. They are scientists, they are health economists, and there is a commitment in our community, especially on the regulatory side, to keep driving forward and to keep fulfilling the missions of these agencies, whether it's CMS, whether it's at the uh, at the VA and in particular VHA, whether it's FDA, whether it's um, ONC, all of these agencies are full of really smart, really hardworking, passionate people who want to see the digitization of healthcare succeed. And I think that we should feel confident in placing our trust in them. I also think that, and I'm going to give you a bumper sticker here, Aaron, so I apologize. I love it. I love it. There's a phrase I like, which is the cream always rises solve problems that matter to people, that improve lives, and that reduce costs. You make people on both sides of the aisle happy, and you can pick your argument depending on who's in office. There is a, if, if you are going for that sort of um, essentially double bottom line approach, right, you can make people happy with outcomes and equity, and you can make people happy through dollars if you can innovate in such a way that regardless of the political inclination of the person on the other side of a decision that you can show them value, you are going to win. So this idea that the cream rises is, I think, really important. And I go back to what I said um, earlier on in our conversation, Aaron, which is the status quo is unsustainable. Regardless of political gridlock, a par highly partisan, polarized environment, the system will collapse, and that is not politically acceptable for anyone. So if you are reducing costs and improving outcomes and equity, you're going to win. Well, that's a great answer. And I think I've seen this firsthand, and I really appreciate that, that not only the cream rising to the top, but just how dedicated, like I think a lot of people don't realize, particularly if you work for NIH or the FDA or you know any of the other CDC you do it out of love, not because you're political, not because you're getting paid tons of dollars, right? Because you're not. 
And I've had an opportunity, I'm, I'm sure you have, to to meet and work with these people. And they are lovely people who care deeply about what they do. And I think you you identified them correctly when you said civil servant, right? They are here to serve the public and to make public health better. And so I appreciate you leaning into that. I do want to do one slightly off the roadmap question. You and I touched on it up front, but um, we'll just touch on it briefly. And that is given what your organization does and given this sort of whole conversation around generative AI that was spawned by ChatGPT and DALI, which I think there's a lot of great potential, but there's also a tremendous amount of hand-wringing and particularly in the world of healthcare, there's a lot of hand-wringing. I'd love to just get your sort of more than your bumper sticker, but we don't have to give a full, you know, 30 minute presentation on where are we with generative AI and how are you seeing it and and maybe where it's headed? Well, we should uh, maybe plan a follow up where we dive into that in detail Love it. because there's certainly a lot there. But maybe I can actually use this opportunity to pull on a thread that we've already mentioned, which is this idea of like, what's the problem you're trying to solve for? And the bigger the pain point, the more successful you will be. You know, you and I, Aaron, have been, I mean, I've been immersed in this field for a long time now. You're an expert in it too. And even before digital existed in healthcare, in healthcare, the diffusion of innovation and adoption is just hard and it's slow. It's a large industry. It's complex. Um, We've talked a lot about, gosh, how can we drive the adoption? How can we be successful? How can we actually go to scale with these digital solutions that we actually prove work? Let's just pause for a second and think about how adoption of generative AI, particularly for like documentation for clinicians, has just spread like wildfire. It solves such an enormous pain point. There is not a single healthcare executive in this country who doesn't lose sleep at night worrying about can they staff their unit? You know, can they actually get enough clinical expertise to provide care for the patients that they are responsible for? There is not a single clinician with documentation responsibilities who doesn't hate it or feel overly burdened from it or who questions their vocation as they spend 40 to 60% of their time in that documentation. So then along comes a digital solution that addresses the worst part of the clinician's job that acts with the potential to effectively double the clinical workforce capacity by stripping out a lot of the time that's spent in administration as opposed to in patient care and watch how it was adopted. And so do I have questions about the level of evidence? Do I have concerns about where the data has come from? Do I have concerns about the performance of these tools, considerations around equity? Yes, of course, me and everyone else. Do I believe that they are solvable? Yes. Um, Do I believe that there's a question about how quickly should we be deploying these things given the laundry list of things I just shared? But what you can't argue with is adoption is not a problem when you solve a pain point that is absolutely crushing to some of the most important stakeholders in our field. Well, that is not only a great answer for something we didn't discuss a lot, but I realize it also is a nice tee up to uh, my next question. We touched on this at the beginning of the uh, the interview, and that is that you were kind enough to participate in our Real Health Equity event. And lo and behold, the topic that you were, the panel you were on was reversing and not reinforcing bias through the promise of AI um, with Michael Crawford and uh, Afia Abzal from, I believe, um, J&J. J&J, thank you. I was like, I don't want to get the company wrong because I know we work with them. But 
maybe just a quick redux of that session and any, you know, takeaways that you sort of found particularly interesting. I mean, the framing of the session was spot on. So kudos to you and the team, right? Which is, it's not should we, shouldn't we? It's how do we actually develop algorithms um, and AI solutions in such a way that they provide benefit to all of the patients that our industry exists to care for, and that actually we start to ameliorate these long-standing health disparities and, quite frankly, the structural racism that exists within the healthcare system as it stands today. And we talked about some very, um, very tangible ways that we can think about this. You know, first of all, what's the problem that you're trying to solve for, right? And what's the impact of solving that problem on different members of the community? Starting there is an interesting and important question. Then thinking about how are we training these models and then how are we testing them and retesting them over time? Um, And there's sort of myriad I almost said tips and tricks, but that's uh, really minimizing some of the scientific um, and uh, mathematical approaches that we can use. Again, there is absolutely no technical reason why we can't do this correctly. We just need to make sure that the folks who are developing these solutions realize that they can differentiate themselves in the market by actually building inclusive solutions, that there is a double bottom line here for anyone who's willing to build out proof points that says this performs well for everyone. This is not going to end you get end you up on the front page of the New York Times with a, you know, a decision to incorporate an algorithm that performs differently in different populations, that actually there's real value for developers There's also a real need, I think, to educate a lot of the decision makers and the end users who are contemplating or implementing these AI solutions so that they actually know the right questions to ask and they know what a good answer looks like. Well, what I liked about your tips and tricks comment, even though you walked it back a little bit, is I think where you're going is there is this is not rocket science. And if you apply some of the principles that have existed for a long time, It's really just sort of being mindful and purposeful about your approach. And I think as we're solving a lot of these societal issues and these health equity issues, this is no different, right? So it's just being aware of the blind spots and and doing the things that you mentioned. One of the things that I do want to sort of tap your brain for, because Jennifer, you've done such amazing things and we know that the future is, you know, our, our children, our, you know, interns, our young employees that are sort of coming up to the ranks and they're going to one, they went through a pandemic that, you know, is one of their first experiences. And two, they've only ever lived with digital, right? And and sort of all things being available online. So what advice would you give to young professionals, particularly those interested in working in healthcare today? The first piece that I actually think is really exciting is there are so many more opportunities to work in healthcare than there were previously. I almost said easier, but it's not easy because you still need to be sort of an That's expert. true. But you know, you can have a background, you you can be a PhD mathematician and have a meaningful role in healthcare now. You can be a cybersecurity expert and have a meaningful role in healthcare. You can be a privacy attorney and have a meaningful role in healthcare in the digital era. There are so many different ways to actually blend your passion and your personal sort of career talent in an industry that so desperately needs smart, hardworking, thoughtful people who want to make a difference. And so that's not to discourage, you know, um, people who have feel that vocation to be a clinical care provider, um, certainly not intended to, to discourage, you know, clinical scientists. And there's an 
you know, there's an awful lot of ways that we are building that allows you to bring your talent to the table. As I said, we talked about those different technical roles, you know, those clinical roles are still going to be at the heart of healthcare. And I think we're moving to a system where we are talking more about healthcare than clinical care. And technology allows us to do that. So we can also think about the role of health coaches and we can think about the role of peer support networks that can be supported, augmented, integrated using technology and have this really sort of rich tech stack of, you know, technical solutions, clinical expertise and a human touch that we know is so important for equity and good outcomes. Well, that is incredibly good advice. And, you know, just if anyone needs any more nudging, I think you mentioned a stat up front about the trillions of dollars and in, in the percentage of GDP, you know, it, it is a sexy industry to go into. And I love the fact that you gave people so many different doors to walk in because I've done this for a while and I wouldn't have thought of that. So very useful information. Thank you. Um, we have two more questions left and they're a little bit lighter hearted, but one of them I started asking at the beginning of the pandemic, the one that has been consistent all the way through. But this next one is, and it can be for personal, professional, or both, but if you had one wish, it could be anything you want, what would it be and why? I wish I could clone myself and our whole team at Dime. Uh, I am really proud of the work that we do, the way that we're able to amplify the the, the work of our partners. And I think, I think we're really having an impact in making sure that as we digitize healthcare, it is helping and not harming. Um, there is an enormous amount of work to do. We have a voracious appetite to be staying ahead of these issues, making sure that when we digitize healthcare, we get it right out of the gates, that it is actually working, that it is working for everyone, that we aren't at risk of unintended consequences. And we do that before suboptimal approaches are sort of ossified. And then we spend decades and decades trying to unwind them. So, you know, with with very little humility at all, I would want to clone myself and our extraordinary uh, team at Diamond and give us more capacity immediately uh, to, to work with our extraordinary partners to to build this right well that that is great advice and i think cloning you might be the hardest part because clearly you broke the molds when uh when they created <laughs> you but if we can do it then you know i'm sure you can figure it out and the world would be a better place as such um the last question i like to ask and you know it's funny i get to talk to some of the smartest people in the world and this is the one they always grapple with right and it's there's no right answer to it by the way and that is the you know, imagine the scenario where you're stuck on a deserted island and you can take one album with you. Uh, don't worry about how it works, but which album would you choose? Um, well, first of all, I love this question. I don't even know if it was uh, on the radio in the US, but uh, the BBC has a really nice segment and it used to be on a Sunday night called Desert Island Discs. Oh, really? And they used to get all sorts of uh, celebrities on and they, they take you through your sort of five top songs and, you know, members of royalty did it, sort of, you know, pop royalty, uh, all sorts of people did it, uh, influential scientists. So I love this question, first of all. Um, second, I think that, you know, this could change on an almost minute by minute basis because music is really powerful. Um, it also, you know, it, it ch changes your mood, it reflects your mood, it reminds you of certain times. But uh, for whatever reason, as I sit here uh, on the road in DC this afternoon, I would go with uh, an album by uh, a group called Morchiba called Big Calm. Um, and it just reminds me of, you know, I, I was a teenager. I loved that. I, I pretty much wore that CD uh, down completely. And it makes me happy just thinking about it. Well, and now we have this thing called Spotify. So you can go and find our Apple Music or whatever you use. But I love that choice. And I've done, I think we're at episode 200 and 
30 at this point. So I've asked that question a lot. No one's ever answered. Morchiba, is that what you said the name of the band was? Yeah, Morchiba's yeah. song. Well, they're going to see a spike all of a sudden in there, you know, Spotify listening. So <laughs> they can uh, point back to you and, and give you props for doing that. But this is that point where we will wrap up. And so um, I do want to thank you, Jennifer Goldsack, who's the CEO and co-founder of the Digital Medicine Society, uh, Olympic athlete, good person in general. I'm Aaron Strout, the CMO and the host of the Real Chemistry podcast. And this has just been an absolute delight. So thank you so much, Jennifer. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Really enjoyed our conversation. Want more episodes of the Real Chemistry podcast? Subscribe to our show wherever you listen to podcasts. We post a new episode every Thursday. Visit realchemistry.com for more info.